Well, we have many things for which to thank uh, Jonas Salk, the American virologist and medical researcher who is uh, most famously known as the man who led in the effort to create the first successful polio vaccine. So we have much to thank Jonas Salk just for that. We also have something else to thank him for. This may not be something that you're aware of. He popularized, from what I've been able to discern just looking into this over the last uh, week, he seems to be the one to have popularized this expression, this, this saying that, that I don't doubt no few of us in the room have heard before. Good parents give their children both roots and wings. Jonas Salk apparently was, was the one who actually uh, popularized that and brought it into the national uh, consciousness, this idea of, of the need for children to have both roots, that is to say, a, a sense of deep belonging and, and a security in that belonging, and then wings, wings, the ability, the freedom to, to uh, explore, to change, to grow, Roots and wings, roots and wings. Both are absolutely necessary, really, for, for flourishing to take place in a child's life, the roots and the wings. Important distinction, however, in order for the wings to really do you any good, there does need to be the roots. In order to take flight, if you will, you have to be grounded. You have to be grounded, and, and that's just absolutely true when it comes to, to child-rearing. It comes to be the case when you just think about any human flourishing. It's also, when you begin to think about it, part of the dynamic that is still in play between us and the Lord, the need for roots that the, we would have wings. Well, what might those roots be? What are we talking about there? And how does that dynamic come into, into play? Well, we're going to look at that over the next few minutes. Psalm 126. Uh, we're pressing on in this series in the Songs of Ascent. Psalm 120 through 134. We're just about at the halfway point uh, here in Psalm 126. So in case you're not aware of what these are, this is a collection of psalms put together at some point. We're not sure how and who and exactly when, but the purpose seems to be fairly clear. A collection of psalms for the Jewish pilgrims as they would make their way to Jerusalem, to temple, north, south, east, west, whatever point on the compass they were coming from, as they're making way corporately together as family and clans to the temple for worship uh, there in Jerusalem. I have to tell you over the last several days, I, I, I've been thinking, trying to process, how does this one fit into this collection. I've been trying to, to, to put something else, put something out there, help us to think about that as we've been moving through this series. And it honestly wasn't until this morning, about an hour ago, um, maybe an hour and a half ago, when I was on a walk with my dog, Lucy and, and little Gus as well. One of them said something to me. No, anyway. Um, and, and, I, and I got to thinking, I... I, I, I I, th I think this is it. And on a more serious note, I think this is it. How does this psalm fit into the overall corpus of this collection of psalms as the people are going to worship? What you're going to hear as I read this is a sense of agony and suffering, implicit a why, and when and how and where is the relief coming from. So how does this fit? I think this is how it fits. 
Going to worship does not preclude the possibility of suffering and pain. Being a worshiping people whose heart is seized by the gospel and wanting to assemble, I'm just saying quite practically, in this gathering, this morning, you folks watching on Facebook Live, his stirring that desire up in our hearts to assemble in this way on the Lord's day does not exclude us from the possibility of hurting so much we don't want to be here. The psalm is there to show us when you feel that way, the answer is not give up and cash it in. The answer is keep going to Jerusalem. Keep going to the temple. Keep singing the songs and do it together. Lisp it if you have to. But don't give up. Psalm 126. Hear now the word of God. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Well, can we pray for just a moment? Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you for these words. Uh, it is brief, but there's certainly a lot here. Thank you for the songs that you gave to your people uh, at that time in that context, and you mean for us to learn from them and to sing them as well. And we ask that you would help us to do that, uh, but th there will be no going forward unless you, the one who breathed these words out, ah, move by that same Spirit within our own poor, hard hearts and enliven us and awaken us and shake up our assumptions and our preconceptions about what this means, what this might mean, and deal with us, meet us right where we are, and take us where we need to be. We pray this in your name. Amen. What is the role of remembering? What is the role of remembering in our lives? How, what is your view of history? That's kind of a tricky thing. It, may, it may, may not sound so much just on its face value, but when you think about it, that's a question well worth asking. What, how do you view history? What is the role of remembering? I'm going to just say that there are two pol, polar extremes here, two, two, two extremes on the spectrum, okay? Here's one extreme in terms of a view of remembering and understanding of how history works. I'm going to call this one nostalgia, the nostalgia extreme. This would be a sentimental feeling, a wistful appreciation for the good old days. Uh, this, the, the, the image, the, the token would be the Norman Rockwell paintings. Oh, if we could just live in that world, that, that kind of thing. Uh, it is a rosy retrospection it is a view of the past that is formed according to our own personal greatest hits, which can be very selective, at best partial, 
incomplete, and sadly, tragically, often warped. That's one extreme. Nostalgia. Here's the other one. Amnesia. Not so much a worship and fixation on the past, but a rejection and an indifference to the past. Amnesia. And I'm not talking about the, you know, the physical blow to the head and you can't think and, and uh, Jason Bourne and all that sort of thing. I'm talking about a willful amnesia, a conscious, deliberate amnesia, a, a loss of memory in, in that sense. And here it's not Norman Rockwell, it's, it's Sam Cooke, the old song, Don't Know Much About History. Okay? Uh, the, the idea is, from, on this extreme, that the way to move forward is to wipe that slate clean. To be done with the past. It's an utter dismissal of the past. It's a presumptuous unwillingness to learn from your predecessors. C.S. Lewis referred to this in a slightly different context, but it's worth pointing out. A chronological snobbery. So, these extremes. Nostalgia and amnesia, the worship and obsession with the past, the indifference and the rejection of the past, let's be clear, are both wrong. They are both wrong. The Lord says in His Word, remember. He does say, remember, but in a certain way. In a certain way. And Psalm 126 is pointing us towards the rich benefits of a right remembering, of a, of a right remembering. We need to look back. Yes, we do, but we need to do so in the right way. The, the message clearly seems to be something along these lines, that there is indeed great power, great power, great value, great worth in remembering God's works. And we would do well to do that and do it rightly. Now you ask, well, okay, what would be the impact? What would be the effect? What would be the repercussions of uh, the effect of, of, of such a posture, such an understanding of, of looking back and how to do so? Well, this is the three points of the message, and if you've got the outline, it's right there in front of you. These three things, and the psalm is pointing us in this direction. These three things, this effect that right remembering God's acts can have upon us, even now today. First, enabling us to see. Enabling us to see. Second, emboldening us to pray. Emboldening us to pray. And then thirdly, encouraging us to live. So those three things, enabling us to see, emboldening us to pray, encouraging us to live. Those are the effects that the psalm shows us at least this much uh, here as we think in terms of the impact, the, the repercussions of right remembering of God's great and mighty works, His acts. So let's look at these. First, the first one being, he enabled, this enables us to see. And we see this in verses 1 to 3. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Now, we don't know the circumstances that are being spoken of here. We're, we're just not quite sure. There's enough generality here that we're just really, there are a lot of possibilities. Several commentators have, have spoken into that and, and just I'll just simply say there are several possibilities 
And what's great, the lack of specificity helps to open up the wide field of application all the more for us because of the general nature in which this is spoken. Clearly, a great deliverance has taken place. Okay, that much we can see. That much we can certainly see here. We, there's, there's two stages in this enabling us to see in this first point. The, the first thing being, there's a recounting, and as a consequence of the recounting, there then comes this resting. Arresting. Not arresting, a resting. Okay? So if you see Israel's response, and they, they're recounting what has happened, they're remembering, reflecting. And doing so together, by the way. And they, they, they are marveling over this deliverance that has taken place. They, in some ways, it would seem, it's implied, that, it, that they had no reason whatsoever to expect it, and yet it came. And yet it came. And so, they are, because of this deliverance, they are, their hearts are filled with exuberance, just overflowing. They are rejoicing, rejoicing in what the Lord has done for them. And it's not just Israel, the nation of Israel, it's their, their neighbors, the other nations, because whatever this was was so big and so public and so obvious that the other nations themselves are stunned by this turn of events. They are just utterly shocked by what they're seeing here. And some of you may know that this actually, in an odd sort of way, is a fulfillment of Israel's very purpose. Israel as a nation, as a people, was supposed to be a living testimony of the reality of the living God, who He is, who we are, what His grace is, and what it means to live in response to all of that. Well, oddly enough, in the course of this great deliverance, there is this great testimony, a living testimony to the nations that's taking place in all of this. Well, what you see after the recounting, though, is a, is a resting, a resting, a, a deep realization Something like, like another pass at what they thought they knew, now they're coming to know all the better. Israel, when you, when you pay attention to the flow of verses 1 and 2, and then verse 3, something's happened in verse 3. They are saying much the same as they said in verse 1, but now it's all the more. It's ramped up because of what's been said by the nations in verse 2. It's as though they're hearing what they said, but through other mouths, other voices, and it's dawning on them all the more. Yes, our God is great. We indeed have been delivered. Again, what does verse 3 says? The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. This gladness that's spoken of here is a deep, abiding, heartfelt joy. Reality has dawned on them in a fresh new way because of this experience and, oddly enough, this testimony by their neighbors about their own rescue. And as a consequence of that, their sight and their spiritual sanity is being restored. They're coming to see all the better, all the more clearly who and whose they are, how that can be, and how they ought to be, again, living in response to the Lord's great Grace, the idea, again, simply being remembering God's works enables us to see. And remembering God's works enables us to see, and friends, we need that. We continually need our sight to be restored. Some of you may be familiar with the Hubble Space Telescope. Hubble Space Telescope, it's 
the, probably the best known of, of its type. It's, it's the mo- been the most versatile and probably the most productive, I suppose, of the space telescopes. By space teleco- st- telescopes, in case you don't know, it's an orbiting platform. It's not something on a mountain somewhere in some removed place. It's, it's in orbit. As a consequence of that, over the years, it's been able to peer into deep space and, and come up with these astonishingly vivid uh, images, high, 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 high resolution images over the last several years. Well, if you know anything about the Hubble Space Telescope, you may also know things didn't start off so well for this instrument. When it was launched in 1990, it was quickly discovered when they powered that beastie up that the people on the ground, I don't know who the contractor was, I'm sure they lost their job, failed to ground the mirror, grind the mirror, prepare the mirror, manufacture the mirror properly. And so they fire this thing up, there's so much expectation about this, and the images are all blurry. They're worse than what you'd have with a telescope on Earth. Not better, and now there's all this expense and all this trouble. So three and a half years later, the crew of the Space Shuttle, Shuttle Endeavor go up, they, re- they replace the main mirror, and they do a, an, an optical package rehaul. And now we have all the images that we do. Well, here's where I'm going with this. We need, every one of us, an optical image rehaul. Every one of us. Every one of us. And without exception. There's a once-for-all need that we all have, and that is for the Holy Spirit to move into our hearts, taking our hearts of stone and turning them into hearts of flesh, awakening our understanding of our need of a Savior because of the, the depravity of our hearts and the sin of our present and past, awakening our, opening our eyes to those things and who Jesus is and why He has come and what He has done and the difference and implications that all of that ought to make. We need that work once for all in all of our hearts. But it doesn't just stop there. We are in continual ongoing need of sight repair, of mirrors to be reground, if you will in the telescope imagery. We, every one of us, needs to grow in an understanding of what it means to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourselves and to see not only what that means but its implications in the here and now and the existential moment of what's in front of us. As we engage with complex issues as we engage with complex people and we have to grapple with the call to do justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Friends, we, every one of us, stand in dire need of daily, ongoing, continual sight restoration. It's not a one-and-done deal like a space telescope. praise Jesus he's given us a means by which to get there remembering it's part of the message of the song remembering remembering and not just generally speaking not just generically speaking but calling back individually and corporately together the mighty acts of God 
through history and even in not just like church history, but in our own personal history, the mighty acts of God. It's great power in remembering God's works, and we need to learn to do that rightly. Well, then that takes us to the second point. Not only does this enable us to see, but it actually also emboldens us to pray. Uh, It would seem that what you see here happening as you move from verses 1 to 3 to verses 4 to 6 is that a remembrance of a restoration in the past cultivates, generates, fuels, impels a prayer for restoration in the present. Okay? Verses 4 to 6, let's look at that. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. There's an appeal here and an assurance to the appeal. And both are worth thinking about for just a few minutes. So with the appeal, we have these two striking images that are used. First having to do with a stream in the Negev. Okay, what in the world is that? The Negev is a southern region in Israel, dry, arid, rough terrain, known for the rains that can come down into the ravines and fill those ravines like a torrent, a flash flood in these ravines. It's treacherous. It's still, it's, it's still the case today. Uh, you can probably read of news reports and account, uh, accounts of people who got caught up in, in, in such things, not realizing that it might happen. The idea here for praying for such a restoration as that is not the destructive part, of course, not that, but the suddenness. Praying for a sudden restoration, a nowness to it, an immediacy to it, a sheer gift coming down from heaven, flowing down from heaven upon his people. Oh, Lord, would you do this like streams in the Negev? But that's not the only, that's not the only image. There's another one here. And, and shifting from a stream in the Negev through seed for sowing. And here, it's, it's not out in the desert. It's a farmer's field. An agrarian image, which, of course, people in that day would have been much more in tune with than most of us are today. But the idea being not something immediate, the restoration, an immediate nowness to it, but a slowness to it, a steadiness to it. And yes, still a gift, but in a mysterious way, somehow our labors, our efforts, our part mixed in there. Farming. Farming. The, the idea seems to be that there is, that with this appeal, there's an open hand. A teachableness, if you will. In the, in the prayer. As we see Jesus modeling for us in the Garden, garden of Gethsemane. Not what I will, but you will. What you will. You know, Lord, restore us. Oh, would you restore us? Would you have mercy Would you do it now? But if not now, soon, sometime. We trust you. We know. We know. We appeal to you. Your mercy, your wisdom, your provision. Whether by stream or by seed, restore your people. Okay? But with that openness, at the same time, there's also this, in the appeal, there's also an assurance, a a, a sense of, of expectation about the prayer. And you see it in the, in the very language that's, that's used here. Uh, the, the one who sows in tears shall reap 
with shouts of joy. That's verse 5. Verse 6, the one who goes out weeping, bearing that seed for sowing, shall come home with the shouts, bearing the sheaves uh, with, uh, with him. There's a, there's a sense of assurance there. There's a sense of certainty there. Um, now, now, it, not, it's, shall is, is the verb. Not, well, it might come about, you know, if we're lucky. But there's a sense of certainty and assurance to what the psalmist is saying. Now, how can that be? How can you pray such things with such, assert, such assurance and such certainty? Well, let me paraphrase Francis Schaeffer for a minute and then rift on his, his quote. He is there and he is not silent. He is there and he is not silent. Here's Richard's rift. Nor is he deaf. He is there, he is not silent, nor is he deaf, nor is he hard of hearing. He is with his people. He is present. He has been with us then. He will be with us now. And so there is a certainty, there is an expectation, there is an assurance to the prayer. So you see, remembering God's works emboldens us to pray. Right? It's not like, well, he used to be that, but now he's old. No. Praise God, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He shall, hear me, hear the text. He shall restore our fortunes, and in the wonder of his ways, through prayer, he says, I will take and move through your prayers for restoration to bring about this restoration and the wonder of his ways. And in the wonder of his ways as far as how and when and through whom and what he will do it. As we pray with expectation and, and certainty, we can know, we can know that it will come. It may not come how we think. Okay. It may not come when we'd like, but it will come. It will come possibly, partially in this life. It will come certainly, fully, finally in the next. That's why we are an eschatological people. We believe in the end, and we know who wins. Okay? Christianity is about hope, a certain hope, and it gives us the ability to hang on. So we pray. We pray with, with expectation. We ask. We ask because of what we've seen in the past with hope and expectation, assurance of the future, knowing He shall restore our fortunes. There's power in remembering God's works. We need, to remember, we, we need to grow in what that means and to learn to do it right. Last thing. Not only does this enable us to see and embolden us to pray, but it encourages us to live. It encourages us to live. And, and you can see this as you just kind of take a step back from the psalm as a whole and not dicing it up into little pieces, but just kind of, okay, this is the flow. This seems to be the over, big picture now of, of what you see. And it encourages us to live in two ways. First, um, 
in, in the tension. It helps us to live in the tension. And it helps us to live in dependence. Independence. Let me explain that. So first, let's look at the evidence. The evidence that we see here in the psalm. Uh, the, the people clearly, verses 1 to 3, are hearkening back to some great deliverance. Again, we don't know exactly what was happening, but some great, obvious, public, huge manifestation of God's grace, mercy, power, a great deliverance they're hearkening back to. And now they find themselves in trouble again. Okay? That's the evidence. What inference should we draw from the evidence? The Christian life is a mix of rejoicing and weeping. That's the inference we have to draw from the evidence. The Christian life is clearly a mixture of both joy and sorrow, gladness and tears. You can't get away from that with the Psalms and just pick this one in on its own. It's, it's abundantly obvious and clear. Now, Yes, it's a mix. And in the end, joy wins. Joy has the last note. Okay? But in the meantime, we will experience both in equal measure. Okay? And we need to be prepared for that and to basically expect that and not find ourselves shellacked when it comes. That admixture of the two, the joy and the sorrow. Psalm 126 is showing us this very thing, what it means, what it looks like, and encouraging us to live in this tension. It also, part is a sequel right on flowing from that, it helps us and encourages us to live independence. What, what do we mean by that? Independence upon the one in whose steps we follow. Think of who Jesus is. The one that we follow. Think of how he began his public ministry. You remember? The Gospel of John, a wedding in Cana, a place of, a context of rejoicing. Wonderful, wonderful time. And Jesus, in fact, is, is so gladdened to be there. His first public miracle is to multiply the wine so the party can go on. That's how Jesus' ministry starts. How does it end? And how is he described? As the man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. Friends, we should expect, given who we follow, given who has said, my intent, my design, my love for you is to make you more like me. So if his experience is to be the man of both joy and sorrow, and his, we, that's who we follow, and he's making us more like him, what then should we expect our experience to be? You see? This is the one from whom we learn. This is the one to whom we look. This is the one upon whom we lean. A life of dependence on Him. You think in terms, just in terms of not just who we follow, you also just think in terms of where this is going to go, where this leads. So, and those of you who have been, shall I say, 
um, the more m- mature Christians in the room. Jesus has been doing business with you for a long time, and you've got the scars to show it. Okay? The, 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 the re-breaking that the wounds might be set right. Okay? That's what I mean by that. Um, you could testify to what I'm about to say and what the psalm is, about to, is, is, is saying here. Hearts transformed. The heart of flesh, excuse me, the heart of stone that's now been made the heart of flesh over time increasingly feels. It's awakened. It's awakened to deeper joy and deeper sorrow. Deeper joy and deeper sorrow than ever before. How can that be? Well, what do you know? What are you growing in knowledge and awareness of? He is your God, thinking in terms of joy. This God is your God, and He has said, you are mine. And I have forgiven you of all of your sin. And I have set you free. And one day, I'm going to make all things new. So there's a heart of joy. And as you grapple with those things and the wonder and implications of those things, you just become an increasingly joyful person. That deep gladness we read of even in verse 3 of Psalm 126. That said, we also grow in sorrow. Because a mark of Christian maturity is not just growing in the deep gladness, but growing in deep repentance. Growing in an awareness and a sorrow and a grieving for your sin. The sin of your heart. The hardness of your heart. And the sin of, as you see around you, the effects of the fall everywhere. The hardness of other people's hearts, the way that they are cut off from these things. And you grieve. You ache increasingly as you grow in Christ-likeness. Your heart of stone being transformed into a heart of flesh makes you feel makes you more human, makes you more alive. That's where this takes us. You see, remembering is not stagnant. It's vibrant. It enables us to live and encourages us to live. We're like Pinocchio, friends. The inanimate, I mean, okay, I know he was moving, but, you know, stay with me. The wooden puppet who comes alive. That's us. We're coming alive by God's grace. Did anybody tell you that's what you were signing on for? I wish they'd told that to me. But that's what we see here. Explains a whole lot, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Doesn't it explain a whole lot? And it's so good to know. Whether you knew it or not, it's so good to know these realities. There's such power in remembering God's works. Oh, we need to learn to do it rightly. Of course, now that does assume something, doesn't it? And all this talk about remembering. 
it assumes that it's what you're remembering is real. It assumes that it's actually true. It assumes that, you know, if you're there at Golgotha and you were given the freedom to approach the cross, you could run your hand and get a splinter over that cross. That's the kind of rawness it, it assumes and historicity that it assumes. I was listening to a podcast just here recently from, uh, with David Chapman. Not the David Chapman we know and love who just had surgery. It's a different David Chapman. He's the, uh, sorry, Dave. Um, you're welcome to start your own podcast. I'm assuming you're watching. Um, but uh, I'm speaking here of the David Chapman who is a New Testament professor and is professor of archaeology at Covenant Seminary in St. Louis. And in this interview, they were speaking to him about his field of expertise and trips that he's taken to Israel. And I'm just going to read you a quote here from the podcast, the interview. I often take, I often take groups from our seminary over to Israel and we try to catch up with some of the most recent excavations and such. One interesting excavation that's still going on, but one of the great finds made just in the last several years was a synagogue in a place called Magdala. This is the west shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's on a major road, a major trade route. It's the road that you would take if you're going from Nazareth to, say, Capernaum. And Magdala is famous because there's a lady in the New Testament, Mary Magdalene. And that Magdalene indicates that she's from Magdala. There's a synagogue that's been found there that is the first century synagogue. We know it's first century because it was destroyed when the Romans swept through in 70 AD. And so it was that, that synagogue uh, that was there when Jesus was walking through the land. And of course, Jesus goes from synagogue to synagogue. Magdala is not mentioned by, the name, by name in the New Testament, but Jesus goes throughout Galilee and goes through the synagogues, and this has to be one of the places he was. It's not super big. It's maybe twice the size of my bedroom at home, so it's not large, but it's this neat rectangle. It's got seating in the center, kind of all around the square, so you can see where the person would have stood or sat as they read Scripture and then spoke about it. And it's just very vivid and brings back a sense of this is the kind of structure that Jesus would have been in in his day. I've stood there. I've seen it. Now, is that just an historical nugget, you know, you can talk about over lunch, wasn't that neat, blah, 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 and then forget about it? It could be, but it ought not to be. Nor more, no more so than the other geographical sites that you read of in the Old and New Testament. No more so than the, other, than the historical records, the other historical events that are corroborated in extra-biblical sources. No more so than customs that are confirmed that you read of in Old and New Testament. No more so than names, yes, real names mentioned in the Old and New Testament that are found elsewhere. None of those things should be ignored. You know why? Because we can call back upon the historicity of these events that we would be enabled to see, emboldened to pray, and encouraged to live. And if it didn't happen, if it's not historical, if it's not real, we have nothing to call back on. But you see, it did happen. It is real. As surely as you woke up and got out of bed this morning. That's part of history. Recent, I'll grant you. But it is no more historical than these events. Friends, we have something real to hearken back to. It's not an illusion. It wasn't invented out of thin air. It didn't 
wasn't just crafted and invented by some people with some brilliant ideas. This is all real. And it's why there can be such transformative power in recalling these things and, oh, how we need to grow in an understanding of what it means to do that and to do so together. Can we pray? Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the reality that history is an account of your works, with our own personal history, or we want to speak of redemptive history as recorded in the Old and New Testament. Here we see your movements. We see your purposes unfolding. We see your footprints and your fingerprints. What sort of God are you? You must be personal. You must be mighty and loving and merciful and gracious and faithful and wise and purposeful and worthy. And as we reflect on your works, both in creation and in history, our own personal history, but the larger picture too, we know that can have a transformative effect upon our hearts. And we need that. Every one of us here this morning needs to grow in our ability to see, to grow in boldness to pray, to grow in our courage to live. We ask that you'd give us grace, the grace of right remembering. We pray these things in your name. Amen.